Well, welcome again. We have been uh, walking through these, what are called the Psalms of Ascent. These are songs that the people of Israel would sing and pray as they traveled up to the elevated city of Jerusalem. And so they would go up, they would ascend up to the city and sing these songs as a way to uh, encourage them and fortify them and strengthen them for this long journey. These were songs for their sojourn. And like them, we too, people of us in here who might identify yourself as somebody who's following after Jesus, who is seeking after God, and you're on this sojourn towards God in the city of God, we too, we sing these songs. These songs are for us. These songs are just as necessary for us to sing and to, to get into our bones so that we might be fortified and strengthened on our pilgrimage and our journey as well. And to set up Psalm 123, um, here's how I want to set it up. I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Office, but in an, in an, in an episode, there's a, a character named Andy, if you're familiar, who one night he's, he's on his computer and decides to record himself a cappella singing all four parts to the song Rockin' Robin. You may remember this. And he, he sings it all and he mixes it down and then he converts it into a ringtone. So that any time anybody calls him, the phone goes, and it's just, it's him singing. So he's very proud of this, goes to church, or not church, he goes to uh, the office the next day, and he's showing this off to everybody, he's very proud of this. And of course, his coworker, Jim, uh, when he's not looking, takes his phone from him and hides it in the ceiling somehow. So that, uh, and now anytime anybody calls it, it's singing and Andy doesn't know where it is and he goes, I have lost my cellular device. And at first it's very just kind of silly or whatever, but as the show goes on and on and Jim keeps calling it over and over and over, Andy gets increasingly agitated, angry, to the point where he, he, he hits his breaking point and he screams and he turns and he smashes his hand through the drywall. Jim's eyes get big, and he's on the phone, and he instantly hangs it up, and everybody in the office goes quiet. Everyone's kind of freaked out, and Andy realizes, oh, that I shouldn't have done that, and goes, tries to normalize it by saying, that was an overreaction. Phyllis, can I get you anything from the break room? And he's just trying to kind of normalize this moment, and the reason I bring that up is because he, he's, he's, he's hit his breaking point. Why? Because he's been the butt of the joke, and he has been laughed at, and he's been kind of tormented, and he hates it. He has, he's had enough. He's fed up with the ridicule and the humiliation. And I bring that up because Psalm 123 is actually written from that same place of frustration, that same place of, I, I, I am, I am I'm sick of the world laughing at me, sick of being the butt of the joke. In fact, look at verse 3. He says, we have had more than enough of contempt. And then again in verse 4, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. The technical definition for the word contempt is the feeling that a person or a thing is worthless or beneath consideration. Think about that, beneath consideration. That is a cold, that is cold. To look at somebody and say, you are, you are beneath me, and I disdain you to such a degree, I want you to feel the fact that you're beneath me. 
And rather than freaking out and punching a wall, the author of this psalm, he prays. He prays for mercy. You, you see it in uh, verse 2. He says, we look to the Lord and we wait on him until he has mercy on us. It says it two times in verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. This is a short, simple prayer for mercy in light of the contempt that he's receiving from the world. And I think it's, even though it's short, even though it's simple, it's super helpful because it shows us two things. It shows us what we need to know, and it shows us what we need to see. So that's what I want to look at with you this morning. What we need to know, what we need to see. So what do we need to know? Well, uh, why is he being ridiculed? What, what, is the, what is the reason behind why he is receiving so much contempt because they didn't really tell you. But scholars speculate, they're kind of educated guess, is that he, he is receiving contempt primarily because of his faith. He's not just being you know, mistreated or kind of verbally abused. He's being mistreated because he is on this sojourn towards God. In fact, there, there's, there's some interesting hints. If you, if you put this psalm right next to Psalm 22, there's a lot of fascinating parallels. For example, Psalm 22 uses the same language of God being enthroned, which is the word you find in verse 1 of Psalm 123. Psalm 22 uses all the same language of being scorned and despised and mocked and contempt, the same Hebrew word that you find in Psalm 22, Psalm 123, if you're following me. And, um, but it's interesting, Psalm 22 adds this detail of what the mockers are actually saying and the detail from Psalm 22 is, it says, he trusts in the Lord, let the Lord deliver him. Meaning the mockery is, oh, he believes in God, let God deliver him. So here's, here's the point. The reason why this guy in this psalm is receiving all of this scorn, all of this contempt, is because of his faith, because he is pursuing the Lord. Now, you might have this reaction, you might hear that and you say, oh, bless his heart. I hate that for him. That that stinks for this dude. But here's the thing. This is not just a one-off example in the Bible. The Bible from beginning to end is pretty emphatic that if you are going to seek after God, if you're going to go on a sojourn after God, contempt comes with the territory. That's what we need to know. That's what you need to know. If you're going to be somebody that chooses to go and seek after God, you need to know that you are going to receive a certain degree of contempt from the world. In fact, this is what Jesus says himself. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, to be a follower of Jesus, somebody who's hated by the world, who is ultimately crucified by the world, why would you think you're going to make it out any better than me? To receive contempt from the world is what is inevitable. If you're going to see God, contempt from the world is inevitable. Now, here's the thing. This doesn't mean that the, that the church, that we're victims. We, we have earned a lot of the contempt that has come our way. We have, uh, and we have a lot of repenting that we need to do, things that we need to own, things that we need to change for ways that we have hurt people, for the ways that we have set up barriers against people. And yet, at the end of the day, some barriers are always going to remain up. I mean, the Bible itself says that Jesus himself is a, is a, is a stumbling block, a, a rock of offense, meaning that Jesus himself will be offensive just because of who he is. 
In fact, the cross, the word used to describe the cross in 1 Corinthians is the word scandalous. The Greek word is scandalon. It's basically saying the cross is, it is going to scandalize everybody's sensibilities primarily because the cross, the gospel, it's all founded on grace. And the world hates grace. The world is merciless and does not like this concept that is at the root of what it means to follow God, grace. So much so, uh, you may remember, I've mentioned this before, but Sarah Silverman, famous stand-up comedian, she has a little clip on YouTube, which is just a little three or four minute snippet of her of a a kind of a larger stand-up act. And the name of the clip is called Religion is Crazy. She's going off and kind of make fun and all, make, making fun of all these religions, but she really kind of zeroes in on Christianity, and here's what she says. She says, okay, so you're born a sinner, and you're going to hell, but if you just apologize, you go to heaven. If you're a murderer, same thing. You just apologize and go to heaven. You can be Hitler, and you just go and you ask for forgiveness, and Hitler goes to heaven. I mean, you, you see what she's saying? She's like, that sounds insane to me. You can just be, you can be a monster of a person and be behind murdering millions of people. Just ask for grace and you get it. That's insanity. Religion is crazy. In fact, you know, she, she makes jokes about it. It's kind of lighthearted even though she's kind of making digs. But this, this is actually a much deeper point of contention in our modern conversation, this idea of grace. Uh, for example... You may remember after the murder of the Emanuel Nine at the AME Church in, in Charleston, uh, all of the surviving families of the victims lined up at Dylan Roof's hearing. You remember this? And they lined up one after the other, expressing their pain, their rage, and yet every single one of them at the end of it said, and I forgive you. You did this to my family. You took this person away from me, and I forgive you, and I forgive you, and I forgive you. It was, I mean, for a lot of people's reaction to that was just, that's amazing. That is inc- that's so inspirational. That's so uh, that's unbelievable. But that was not everybody's reaction. In fact, Stacy Patton wrote an article in the Washington uh, Post, uh, an opinion article in the Washington Post, in light of that event. Called t- uh, the title of her article is "Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists." And you should read it. It's a very thought-provoking article. She, she raises a lot of issues that are a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced than I can really get into in this space. But what struck me about the article is her disdain for the black church's response of grace to a white terrorist. Why in the world would they give grace to this person? And so she says in the article, quote, the parade of forgiveness was disconcerting to say the least crazy, disconcerting, baffling, if you are going to follow a God of grace, if you are going to sojourn towards God, contempt from the world comes with the territory. That's what you need to know. Here's the second thing. What do you need to see? That's what you need to know. What do you need to see? And just to cite my sources, I'm getting a lot of help from on this point from a friend of mine named Matt Grimsley. Thank you, Matt Grimsley out there. He'll never know. I just said his name, but you did. There you go. So the psalm begins with a a reference on on, on what we need to look at. If you notice, he uses the word eyes, literal eyes, four times in two verses. Do you see that? Verse 1, to you I lift up my 
eyes. Verse 2, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. So what do we need to look at? What do we need to see? Two things. Here's the first thing that we need to see. We need to see the Lord in his loftiness. That's the first thing that we have to see, the Lord in his loftiness. You see in verse 1, he lifts up his eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. You know, as he is receiving contempt, scorn, shame from the high and mighty of the world, he lifts his eyes over their heads to the high and the mighty one of the universe. He, he goes over their heads, as it were. He, he appeals to a higher court, which is what all of us do anytime we feel like we've been mistreated, right? If... if when you were younger, you're in elementary school, if you, know, you feel like you're being picked on or mistreated by the kids, what do you do? You go and you, you tattle on them. You go to the teacher and you, you go over their heads. Or if you are uh, experiencing some, some sort of trouble in uh, customer service, you ask to speak to the manager. You go over their heads. I need to speak with someone who has authority around here who can advocate for me and do right by me. That's what, the psalm is, that's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, when you have had enough of the contempt of the world, you can turn your eyes not just to a higher up, but to the highest up. This is, in fact, this is what all prayer is. All prayer is lifting your eyes up and reorienting and recalibrating your sense of where you are in the world, that you are looking to one who is enthroned in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. That's where all prayer begins, lifting your eyes up, which I think does two things. This is why this is so important. Why you have to see the Lord in his loftiness, it does two things. The first thing it does is it gives you courage to stand firm. It gives you courage to stand firm. If you believe things that the rest of the world is throwing shade at, you know, blaming you, throwing humiliation towards you. You're on the wrong side of history. You're, you're, what you believe is dangerous. What you believe is, is, you know, you're a bigot. It's so tempting to then just change what you believe because no one wants to feel that. No one wants to feel like you're the butt of the joke. It's so tempting to change what you believe so that you, you fit in. You're, you're received by the world. Who, who doesn't want to be on the wrong side of history? To not experience shame, but to experience honor. We're the right kind of people who believe the right kind of things. But notice... The psalmist does not change what he believes. He lifts his eyes up to the Lord so that the Lord might give him courage to stand firm as he endures, endures the shame and the contempt and the scorn from the world. By lifting your eyes up, it helps you to stand firm, even though you're being made fun of, even though you're being laughed at. And here's the second thing it does. It keeps you from being undone by the contempt. You know, contempt, like we said at the beginning, it's made to make you feel lower than, made to push you down. Remember the definition, beneath consideration? But when you lift your eyes up to the one who is enthroned in heaven, you are reminded of your exalted status, of somebody that gets to call on this God as your father. As someone you get to be, in, you, you, are, you are recalibrated to this exalted state, and it prevents you, helps you from being undone by the world. In fact, that is why this psalmist appeals to the Lord's mercy. You see that in verse 3 and 4 where he's asking for mercy. He's only asking for mercy because he knows that this God is a God that is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. 
And here's what's crazy. This, the author of this psalm could never have guessed just how bottomless the Lord's mercy really is. I mean, c- consider this. If there's anybody that deserves the contempt of God, it would be people like us, people like me, people like you, people that have turned their back to God, people that have kind of vandalized his world with our sin. If there's anybody that deserves to be, to receive the contempt from God, it's us. And yet, out of his mercy, God does not give us contempt. He gives us mercy. He gives us endless mercy, so much so that he even sends his son to rescue us from ourselves by enduring the scorn and the contempt that we deserve. I mean, think about this. As Jesus is being crucified, the soldiers around him are laughing at him. They're mocking him. They're labeling him. They're spitting in his face. They, they blindfold him at one point, and they're like, okay, Mr. Know-it-all, you know everything. Mr. Omniscient, okay. And they punch him in the face and say, okay, who just punched you? They're just, just laughing at him. What a joke this person is. He's receiving the scorn. He is receiving the contempt that we deserved. Why? Why would he do it? Why would he willingly go through that when he didn't have to? Here's how I want to answer that. I don't know if you've seen the TV show, The Office, but if you remember in season six, Jim and Pam, spoiler alert, they finally get married. And it's an hour-long episode. It's, it's, two, you know, it's a two-part episode. It's an hour-long thing. And it's it's an amazing episode, but leading up to the actual wedding, Pam is a bit of a hot mess. She's she's upset. She's crying. Everyone's driving her crazy. She she had ripped her veil. Uh, She's five months pregnant, so she just feels ugly and big, and she can't. She's not fitting into her perfect dress and kind of her perfect moment, her wedding day. All of the magic of it ruined. And so she's upset. She calls Jim into the you know the little waiting room thing and she's sitting back there and Jim comes in and he sits down with her and takes her by the hand and he's trying to console her he's trying to be with her and she's a wreck and he's he's with her and what he does is he reaches over and he grabs a pair of scissors and he's wearing this tie and he just snips it off so it's just this mangled weird half of a tie left on his you know tux or whatever and she's just you know she's melted by this this move and it's just sweet and they get married it's wonderful everyone weeps by the end but what, why, why did he do that? Why in that moment did he decide to snip his tie? What he was doing is he was saying, okay, when we go into that room together, I want the world to know I'm with her. She might be a hot mess, but look, I'm a hot mess right here with her. In fact, what he does is he actually deflects all of the shame, all of the humiliation that might have been directed towards her, and he takes it on himself. You can laugh at me. You can mock me. Look how idiotic I look with this half of a tie. Shame me. Throw the contempt at me, not her. He shows the depth of his love for his bride by deflecting the contempt onto himself. That is what Jesus does for us. Shame me. Humiliate me. Punch me. Have contempt for me, not my bride. So much so that once you know even the depth of his love that he was willing to do that for you, you now know, okay, this is how God actually thinks of me. He doesn't, not only does he not give me contempt, but he speaks of me the most loveliest words. 
I am his treasured possession. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are his child. You are righteous. You are his beloved. You are his. That is how he describes you. When you look to the Lord in his loftiness and in his mercy, that prevents you from being undone by the contempt of the world because it shows you that he gives you what the world doesn't. The world might give you contempt, but he gives us mercy. That's why we need to see the Lord in his loftiness. And here's the second thing we need to see. We also need to see ourselves in our lowliness. See the Lord in his loftiness and see ourselves in our lowliness. If if you noticed in verse 2, it's pretty interesting. He uses all of these images uh, of of servants. Do you see that in verse 2? It's interesting, which I, I think is curious, because if you're writing a song designed to lift you up out of contempt, why not remind us that we're kings and queens and we're, you know, we're royal. Why remind us that we're servants? Well, here's why. Here's why it's, it's interesting, I think. Because he's reminding us of who we are and what our job is. The servant's job is to serve. Now, granted, this is, this is not, you know, if you're thinking of like slavery, like Ameri- this is American slavery, this is not like chattel slavery from our history. This is, this is something different. This is this is him knowing that this master of his is someone who loves him, who cares for him. That's why he's so intently watching and waiting for his master to respond and jump up and provide relief for him. He knows it's his master's job to protect and defend him, and he knows it's his job to serve. And here's why this is so important, because when we see ourselves in our lowliness, when you know in your heart of heart, I am really just a servant of the king, that protects you from having to defend yourself. That when you receive the shame and the humiliation of the world for your faith, it protects you from feeling like you've got to clap back. You've, you've got to double down. You've, you've, got, you've got to return the contempt with more contempt. Which is what many Christians in this moment of our cultural moment are, are deciding to do. They said, we are receiving the contempt, we're receiving the scorn from the world, and our response is, okay, I will, I will take that contempt and I will one-up you. I will double down on the contempt and throw it right back in your face. And I understand why someone would have that reaction, but that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, if someone slaps you, turn to them your other cheek. If someone takes your shirt, give them your jacket. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's not contempt. Paul says in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. If you're throwing contempt at somebody, that is your attempt to get above them and push them beneath you. But when you see yourself in your lowliness, When you are reminded, I am but a servant, that reminds you, I I put myself under everyone, under my neighbors, even the very ones that are throwing contempt at me. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count other people as more significant. That's just another way of saying your job is to serve, your job is is to love, and it's the Lord's job to protect and defend and avenge and to judge. As Jesus himself says, 
those who exalt themselves will ultimately, eventually be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The invitation for you this morning is that if you are somebody who is seeking after God and you're, you're, you have tasted it to some degree, the scorn and the contempt for that choice of journey and after God, if that's you, may you endure the contempt that comes your way with patience and with humility and with hope and above all these things with love because that is the way of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us the strength, give us the endurance. It is, it is so hard to follow after Jesus in this moment. It's so tempting to walk away. It's so tempting to modify. It's so tempting to throw contempt back. I pray that you would help us. Would you, have, would you give us eyes to see our, our Savior, our suffering servant, who was willing to endure the contempt for us so that we might be agents of love and blessing in the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name.